got your Bibles this morning, if you'd open up to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Several weeks ago, um, some of you were, were there. I had the opportunity to preach at Calvary Baptist Church. And the passage that I was speaking about was supposed to deal with service, servanthood. And I looked at Philippians chapter 2, and uh, one of the things that happens often when you're preaching is is uh, you get done and you wish you could re-preach it because you feel like you missed a lot of things. And so when we were looking at, I'm looking at the series, uh, we're talking about gospel implications, uh, you know, living daily out of the truth of the gospel. Last week, how do... How does the gospel teach me to understand myself? How do I view myself? And, and, and it's a constant challenge to be recalibrated you know, as to what the gospel, what the truth of the word of God says about who I am versus the way my fleshly perception is of who I am. Well, today we're going to look at how does the gospel give me bearings to live in regards to other people? other people. And the passage that really kept coming back to me was Philippians chapter 2. So while I was in that text a few weeks ago, and some of you were there with me when I was preaching it, really just a little different way of going about it this morning. I want to look at a message this morning entitled, Christ-like humility. Christ-like humility. And my prayer is, is that as we go through this, is that, that we as a congregation would be trained and encouraged to understand how to view others in light of what the truth of the Word of God is. Let me ask you a question. How many of you get sideways in your thinking with your flesh as it relates to difficult people in your life? Anybody in here? If you're not raising your hand, you're lying, so you need to repent. And uh, we all do, don't we? We all have that temptation. We deal with difficult people. Uh, I, I dealt with some, and I was thinking about how many difficult people I dealt with yesterday. I, uh, I got a call from a guy Friday afternoon. I was minding my own business. A guy called me up, and I was in the middle of something, and he called me and said, are you a preacher? And I said, yes, I am. And he says, well, I got your number. He was in Talladega. He got my number from somebody. And he called me and was immediately mad at me. And I didn't do anything to him. And, and I, I was sitting there talking to him. And then I had a gentleman that was supposed to be at my house at 3 o'clock. I told him I had to go. I got off the phone. I called him back afterwards. And I said, I apologize. Somebody came over. He goes, you're just like all other preachers. And at that moment, I had a choice. You understand what I'm saying? I was caught, My flesh wanted to say a lot of things to this gentleman. But immediately, I, I was, had been studying this text, and immediately it was as if the Holy Spirit was, was reminding me of where I was. The Christian life is daily submitting our will to God's. And you're going to be in situation after situation with your spouse, with your kids, with your siblings, with your parents, with your teammates, in all of life where you're either going to operate out of the wisdom of this world, you're going to operate out of the desires of your flesh, or you're going to submit your will to God's 
and you're going to be reminding yourself intentionally of what the truth of the gospel means in your life daily. And I tell you, when there's a disconnect there, there's a lot of problems, a lot of problems. Let's look at this this morning. We're going to look at three observations about humility, three observations about humility. Mike read the passage that we're going to be in this morning. The the first observation we're going to look at is the command for humility. And, And I want you to think about this question. How are we called to demonstrate humility towards others? Because we see the command for humility here. And and let's read verses 1 through 4 again. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. We see this command. We see Paul speaking to these precious believers at Philippi, speaking to them this call to walk in humility. I want you to think of the backdrop of this because you really can understand the heart of how he's encouraging this congregation without knowing that there's something in the background happening. And one of the many things in the background that is happening that we know of is that there's these two godly ladies, godly women in the congregation of Philippi who are having a hard time getting along. I tell you, it's interesting because, uh, you know, we see in chapter 4, he mentions this. If you want to look over there, if you're in Philippians, turn over to chapter 4. And and he says it in verse 2 and 3. He says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I'll ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Do you realize that you don't graduate from your flesh if you're a Christian? And you can be a pastor, you can be a missionary, you can be an active, involved member of the body of Christ who is esteemed and respected in the church, and you still have to come back to the reminders of the implications of the gospel truths in Christ. I need it, you need it, I need you to remind me of it, you need me to remind you of it, we need each other. And these sweet ladies, Yodia and Syntyche, who had labored with Paul in the gospel, they needed to be reminded of the call to humility, this call to humility. And and, and this is exactly what he does. And in order to understand verses 2 through 4, we read in verse 1, and we're going to come back to it, the realities that we have encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy. And Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. We look at verse 2, and we're going to see how does verse 2, 3, and 4 sum up this idea of the command for humility. And I want you to think about it like this. In verse 2, have the same mind. Verse 3, live with humility. Verse 4, look to the interests of others. 
The first one, though, underneath this idea of the command, have the same mind. Have the same mind, same mind, same love, full accord, one mind, mindset on one purpose. He wants them to recognize that they're to live with a common goal because they have experienced the reality of the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus. So Christians, he's writing to the body of Christ. It's going to apply to people outside of the faith, but he's writing primarily here to the church and how the church is to relate to one another. And he gives them this sense of, he wants them to have minds renewed, minds focused, minds transformed, minds shaped, minds united by the gospel, united in him. They're to live in a common goal. They're they're to live unified in the spirit. They're they're to live in a community of faith, reflecting on the implications of what Jesus has done for them. They're to live out of it. Part of church, you know, we think of sometimes, I think that unfortunately it's an error not only on the side of leadership, but it's an error on the side of laity. But we've completely misunderstood the purpose of the church. We think of church as more consumerism. We go to church to hear a sermon. We go to church to be a part of an hour. But we don't sometimes think of the church as the community of God. In the community of God, we, we, are, we are literally co-partners in this gospel, and we are learning together. We are encouraging one another. We are reminding one another to live out of the reality of who we are. And this has got to affect our marriages, affect the way we parent, affect the way we live in the world. See, if it doesn't affect a teenager in the middle of a school with teenagers that don't know God, then, then we either are not teaching that teenager the implications of the gospel, or maybe the teenager doesn't even understand the gospel even though he's professed Christ. You see what I'm getting at? It's like discipleship is not a class on Sunday nights. Discipleship is all of life. To be a follower of Christ is to walk with him in every arena, whether you're a coach, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a mom, whether you're a dad, whether you're a missionary. Every one of us have creative access platforms in the realm in which we live And the goal and the call is to live out of the reality of the gospel in those areas. So Paul is saying, look, live with the same mind. Live with the same mind. Go back to chapter 1. This is exciting. You sort of see the heart. He's framing this before he gets into chapter 2. And as Paul's writing to the church at Philippi, he says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you in verse 8 of chapter 1, all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. I'll tell you, one of the tragedies of the progressive church is that they want to emphasize love, but they want to emphasize love. The problem is there's no knowledge and there's no discernment. Knowledge is according to the truth of God's word. Knowledge is according to the discernment of the word of God. So I challenge you, teenagers, as you go into a world where you're constantly being berated with people saying, look, your parents got it wrong, your church got it wrong, you have to be careful. You can't navigate simply on some type of compassion and some type of love that's a feel-good general sense. 
Your love has to be anchored in what God has revealed. And if there is no discernment, there's no bearings as how to live as a Christian. And so what Paul is doing is he's saying, look, I want you to realize the ramifications of what Jesus has done for you at the cross. And I want it to frame the way you understand how to live with one another. So there he goes into chapter two. I told the group that I was preaching with a few weeks ago that the illustration that hit me on this is, have you ever been in a situation where people were not in it for the same reason? They weren't in it as a team. They weren't in it focused. They weren't in it together. They weren't in it with one mind. I got a chance to coach a flag football team that Will played on, and uh, it was an adventure. I love coaching, and uh, I, I, I like coaching sports I don't know a lot about. You sort of learn on YouTube. And uh, But I, I, I'm a competitor. You know, I want to beat you at ping pong if we play. I may act like I don't care, but I'm trying to beat you. And... Uh, and, and we're, if you're playing flag football, you got to have everybody working together. Well, every kid there wants to be the quarterback. Every kid wants to have the ball in his hands. Well, the problem is, it's just like, uh, you know, aren't you thankful for people that are gifted to sing? But there's just not a lot of us gifted to sing, right? So if you're not gifted to sing, I really don't want to hear you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm being honest with you. I don't want you on the stage singing. I really don't. You may like to sing in the shower. I want you singing as a congregation, but I'm just being honest with you, right? So when it comes to football, if you can't really run the ball well, I don't want to see you running. I want you doing something that you can do to help the team. Well, the problem is we had everybody there that thought they were running back. They thought they were the man. And we get in the huddle. What are we doing? And you got like 12 seconds to explain to eight-year-olds what the play is. And some of these coaches, I don't know if they were practicing at midnight till four in the morning, but their kids knew what they were doing, and my kids didn't know anything. And it was my fault. I'll take full responsibility. But we get in the huddle, and I've got this, like, piece of paper, and I can't get them to listen to me. And every kid's going, am I going to get the ball? No, no, no. <laughs> you know, but I didn't score a touchdown. And you may not score all year, son. You know, you may not ever score. Listen to me, right? So we're in the huddle. Well, one time, this one kid that was on defense for a reason, and he came off the sideline, and, and, and mama had decided that it was enough. I thought he was going to be happy because he was playing every snap on defense. He wasn't happy. Mama wasn't happy, and I was scared of mama. And he came off the sideline into the huddle, and he looked, and he goes, Mama said, give me the ball now. <laughs> and I immediately called an audible. <laughs> I said, you're getting the ball. All right. I was like, we're giving the ball. And he got the ball. What I learned in that situation is that it is hard to be a team when everybody's focused on what they want to do. And how many of you can relate with me? And it's not something we point fingers at. But how many of you can relate with me in being in church situations where the problem with the fellowship of the church was that everybody was looking out for their own interest. You see, the body of Christ is to walk in the unity that is in the Spirit. We're to preserve the unity in the Spirit, which means that the way that we find unity is unity is only found in the Spirit. We can't produce unity. Unity is given to us through the Holy Spirit, and the way we walk in it is by walking with one mind, with one goal, 
submitted individually and corporately to the Spirit. And that's where he's getting at here. He's saying, look, it, but, but think about it. Just like these precious kiddos that I got a chance to hang out with, and I, I, it was hilarious coaching them because I saw myself. I love these kids. They're hilarious. But you know what? When we lose sight of the, the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will affect every aspect of our life. I wonder this morning in family situations, if you're losing sight of who you are, if you're losing sight of the gospel truths in your life, it'll affect the way you parent. It'll affect the way you are a husband. It'll affect the way you are as a child. It will affect, affect the way you are with your siblings, with your brother, with your sister. Have the same mind, verse 2. Verse 3, live with humility. Under this command of humility, we see that he works this out. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition, it means uh, a desire to put yourself forward. You know, we laugh, and I think it's so much, we get such a kick out of it because uh, when, when you have kids or when you're around your nephews or your nieces when they're young or you're around your younger brother, younger sister, teenagers, we get a kick out of watching them because we see ourselves. We know the reality. It's amazing. You put two kids together and you have one opportunity for the best seat, what happens? There's some interesting things that happen. If you get one ice cream cone left, what do you do? You got one iPad with two kids. That's always a fun thing to see. You got one cookie left, what happens? We know how this works because our flesh wants to cater to ourselves and we want to go after all those things that would help us. But then Paul says, no, in light of what Jesus has done for you, in light of what the grace of God has brought in you, through Christ Jesus, live not selfishly, but with selfish, not with selfish ambition, not with selfishness. And then he uses the word conceit. The word conceit is vainglory. It's used in Galatians 5 as boastful. When we boast or when we think we're the stuff, when we think we're God's gift to the church, when we think that we, we, we offer so many things, what happens is it creates disunity. We become literally a tool in which there's division. It's the opposite of remembering Ephesians chapter 2. When I think that I bring a lot to the table and I reflect as I read the scripture, and as I reflect in the word of God as I read, and, and I told you one of the practical ways to read God's word is to be asking yourself, what do I learn about God? What do I learn about who God is? You know, what, what kind of characteristics do I see about the Lord in this passage? But then asking yourself, what do I learn about humanity? You know, if you're reading in the book of Judges, you start realizing that, wow, we got a problem. People do what's right in their own eyes. If you read in, in 2 Timothy, you're reading about people that don't know Christ and they act in very predictable patterns. Wherever you are in the scripture is an opportunity not only to learn about the character of God, but to learn about the plight of humanity. And the more I reflect on that, and the more I remind myself, because I don't know about you, but sometimes I get the wrong idea of myself. And it's very proud and it's very arrogant and it's very fleshly. And the truth of the scripture that I need in my life daily, it reminds me that it's not of works lest any man should boast. It reminds me that salvation that I've experienced is not because I was smart enough to figure it out or because I made a good decision, 
always gives me, I know what people are saying, but it always just gives me a bother when people, a person trusts Christ and people say, I'm so proud of your decision. That's the wrong emphasis. I'm so thankful for the grace of God. Thankful that God's grace worked in you. But we almost always, even in the way we frame it, we sort of go back to that mentality. You did something we need to be proud of. You did this or you did that. I get why people say it, so I'm not trying to harp on anything like that, but I think you see what I'm saying. But the point being is, is like conceit, selfish ambition is a misunderstanding of how we're called to live. So verse two, have the same mind. Verse three, live with humility. Live with humility. Don't live out of selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Look at others as more important. Regard them, and that's what he does in verse 4. Look to the interest of others. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. In humility, the word is the idea of getting low. It's the idea of not wanting to be recognized. In humility, look to others. You remember, one of my biggest struggles is realizing that if I forget who I am vertically, if I lose sight of God's grace in my life, it always affects me horizontally. And if you lose sight of who you are, if you lose sight of the grace that you stand in, if you lose sight of that, don't be shocked when you have a faulty understanding of others. Don't be shocked when you're overly critical. Don't be shocked when you're constantly passing judgment on others and not yourself. Because we will be in a situation when we do that of showing ourselves much more grace than we show others. And we will be in a place where we will be the problem convinced that everyone else is the problem. But in humility, in humility, regard the gospel. In humility, in regard of the gospel, in, in, rea- in reality of what Jesus has done, let it persuade you not to go after your own interests, but the interest of others. So we see the first of all, the command for humility. But second of all, the example of humility Look what he does here. This is tremendous. As he moves into verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Verses 5 through 11 is one of the greatest passages that deals with who Jesus Christ is. It is the... uh, theologians. We could spend months in these verses, but because of what we're doing this morning, I'm going to hit and highlight some things. I don't have time to go through these passages. The first reality that we have to understand when we look at the example of Christ is we have to understand that this primarily 
is used as a call for people to live in humility. A lot of times when we deal with Philippians 2, we only treat the theology of the deity of Christ. We need to deal seriously with the theology of the deity of Jesus Christ because if we believe that he's lesser than deity, we will die in our sins. John's clear in that in his gospel. Unless you believe that he is the I am, you will die in your sins. If we have a false understanding of Christ, if we make him lesser than God the Father, if we do not believe that he's equal in nature and equal in substance with the Father, we misunderstand the gospel, we misunderstand the Trinity, and we have a false understanding of God. And there's several clues here. I want you to see this. The first part of his humility is his humility in his deity. You can't understand the nature of how humble he was until you understand who he is. How many of you have thought, if you only knew the type of people we have to deal with, you'd understand better? You ever said something like this? Well, you don't know how difficult that person is. They're crazy. Weirdest person I've ever met, strangest person I've ever been around. They drive me crazy. They're annoying. They're hard. They're, they're, they're this. They're that. You just don't understand. But what do we learn in the book of Hebrews? We have a high priest who is not only sinless, but he's sympathetic. And because he was willing to be the God-man, to take on human form, he understands us. He identifies with us. So when we look at Philippians 2, 5 through 11, we have to be reminded of the reality that Jesus Christ does understand because he was ridiculed, he was mocked, he dealt with the very people he created in this world. And the words that we see here that show us the reality that he was in fact God, he says, who though he was in the form of God, and you could literally mean that he was is that he existed one commentator says, it describes that which a man is in his very essence and which cannot be changed. It describes the part of man in which in any circumstances remains the same. So he goes on. So Paul begins by saying that Jesus was essentially and unalterably God. He was. He continuously existed in the form of God. Well, then you may be like, well, wait a minute. What's that word form mean? The word form, it, it, it's a word that expresses something that never changes. One commentator said it's equivalent to having equality with God. We see that this, rather than undermine the deity of Christ, we see if we understand the words in the Greek, this actually gives us a majestic view of who Christ is in his perfect deity. He goes on and he speaks about his humility, not just in his deity, but his humility in his incarnation. Because verse 7 says, but emptied himself. It's interesting. If you look at different translations here, the uh, ESV says, but he emptied himself. The NIV says, but made himself nothing. The New King James says, but made himself of no reputation. So we have this sense of, okay, what does that mean? For us, how do we understand that? I was really helped in, in, in reading this comment in a study Bible that I thought was very precise and right on. 
It says, rather, Paul is stressing that Christ, who had all the privileges that were rightly his as king of the universe, gave them up to become an ordinary Jewish baby bound for the cross. Christ made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, while he had every right to stay comfortably where he was. In a position of power, his love drove him to a position of weakness for the sake of sinful mankind. The emptying consisted of his becoming human, not of his giving up any part of his true deity. But what do we see in all of this? We see that while fully God, he showed humility even in his deity. When he became a man, we see humility in his incarnation. But what do we see that Christ did for us? If we were going to examine this, like I said, fully, we would be here for hours. But we see an overview of this passage. We see humility not just in his deity, humility not just in his incarnation, but humility in his death. And his death points to what a marvelous example, the greatest example the world has ever known of what humility is. Our Lord Jesus Christ becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what we see when we look to the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the command for humility. We're to live this way. But then Paul says, look at Christ. Look at his humility. But then thirdly, the grace to walk in humility. We see the command for humility, the example of humility, but thirdly, the grace to walk in humility. What I just did and how I brought it to this point is, is, is typically how I have, for many people, heard this preached, and, and I feel like the, the heart of this passage is completely overlooked. Because Paul is writing not just saying, here's what I want you to do. Here's who I want you to look to. Paul is writing in language that is unique and marvelous only to the Christian. He's writing in terminology that goes back to that term of union with Christ. He's reminding them that because of who they are in Christ... They now not only have the command to walk in humility, they have the capacity to live under it. Recently, when I went out of town, I had to rent a couple of different cars on my trip. It's a long story. But one thing that will really mess you up if you own a 2012 vehicle is renting a 2022. And I got in a vehicle. And I was amazed. I just sat there looking at the buttons. I was like, I didn't even know cars did this anymore. I, I mean, I did not anymore. I didn't know they did it. And, and I, got, I remember I was getting on the interstate, and, and, and I was thinking like my old car. Because my Honda's got a little bit of zip, but not like this. I was driving a brand-new Toyota Highlander, and I hit the gas, and it sort of threw me because I was like, I was 45 to 90 in a couple of seconds. It was like, whoa, because I had to get past an 18-wheel. I just told you I was going 90. Sorry, I apologize. The, uh, I was moving. I was, I was doing things in that vehicle 
that I didn't understand in my Honda CRV. You have to understand something. In Adam, there's a certain way that you can live and you can understand life. But in Christ Jesus, you're in a whole different location. You're operating under a completely different source. What he says to them in verse 1, notice this. He starts out this chapter, and he uses this word, since. And I want you to notice this with me. This gets in tremendous. He, he says since, and he does this in a way of describing to them who they are in Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 1, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, and scholars agree that this is the force of these words is since there is encouragement in Christ, since comfort from love, since participation in the Spirit, since affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. In the Bible, the blessings always come before the commands. Does that make sense? If you don't understand the blessings of the gospel, you will see the commands and you'll start making a way for morality only. The gospel will then become reduced to nothing more than ethical living. But for the Christian, everything is rooted in the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. The only way that a person can live the Christian life is if they've experienced the power of the risen Christ. And Paul says here, since there's encouragement in Christ. I want us to look at this as we get ready to wrap it up this morning in this last point, the grace to walk in humility. Let's look at that grace. The first word that he uses here is he says, since there is encouragement in Christ. This is tremendous. Uh, in Romans 15, He's the God of endurance and the God of encouragement. I want you to think of this. I think what Paul is doing, the more I've reflected on this over the years, I think what he's doing is he's saying, consider the encouragement in Christ, consider the comfort from love, consider the participation or the fellowship that you have in the Holy Spirit, consider the affection of Christ through the Spirit. Consider the compassion. And then what I think he's doing is he's saying to them, look, you have not only experienced these realities in Jesus Christ as a Christian. You've experienced this from each other because your brothers and sisters are in Christ. But then I think what he's doing is he's saying, you now have this capacity of living in Christ. Encouragement. There's encouragement in Christ. But, but wait a minute. How does the gospel change the way I look at people? Often we act in the, it's sort of like my analogy, we act in the Highlander like we're back in the CRV. If I do that, I don't understand what I have over here. If I live with the mentality like it was, 
I can't understand how God's intended it for me in Jesus. And I know every human analogy breaks down, so let's not get crazy with the analogy of the cars. But, but what I mean by this is this. In Christ Jesus, there's encouragement. There is the ability to come alongside people and encourage them and strengthen them and establish them. In Christ, there's grace to come alongside a believer who is hurting and encourage them. You say, how do I have that capacity? You don't have that capacity other than in Jesus Christ. And what do we learn what Paul says in Galatians 2? I've been crucified with Christ. And nevertheless, it's not I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. We now have the capacity in Jesus Christ as we submit to him to walk encouraging others. You may be like, well, I'm not an encourager. The encouragement is rooted in your union with Christ. But then he says, since there's comfort from love, this idea is to comfort verbally. I was looking at some, some thoughts my dad had on this passage years ago. He said, Christ gives us the right words to say to someone who is hurting. Christ gives us the right words when we come alongside them. He gives us the tenderness of a father ministering to his son who is hurting. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, encourage the faint-hearted. But that term is different. If you're in a secular environment, think about it. If you're in like any type of leadership, any type of corporation, good business practices, good leadership models would be for bosses to encourage their employees. But this is different. This is not just encouragement a man can offer to another man. This is the encouragement that's divinely given because of our union with Jesus Christ. Changes the whole reality. And then Paul says, since there's participation in the Spirit, in verse 5 of chapter 1, he speaks of their partnership in the gospel. In chapter 1, verse 7, he speaks to the fact that they're partakers. And what he's speaking of is we have a mutual participation in the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's the one that enables us to live differently with one another. We've experienced spiritual fellowship because of the Holy Spirit. And what do we learn about the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5? What is the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, on and on and on and on and on. But then he says, since there is affection, I love this. Go back to chapter 1, verse 8. I completely missed this when I was uh, speaking on this a few weeks ago, and it got me so excited when I saw this. In Philippians 1, 8, look what Paul says, and hear, hear what he's doing. He says, for God is my witness how I long for you all. With what? The affection of Christ Jesus? Now, if you didn't understand the theology of what he's saying, that sounds sort of presumptuous. How could you say that I live with the affection of Christ? Christ was perfect, God-man. But what is he saying? I'm now in him and he is in me, and his life in me enables me to show you the very affection that is not similar to Christ Jesus. It's the affection that Christ is producing in me towards you. There's affection. 
That word means it's a deep care and concern, the longing in one's heart for another in the body of Christ. And then he uses the word compassion. The word compassion is the expression of that deep care and concern. There's an affection that we have towards one another. I had a unique experience the other day. Um, Mariah's stepmom got to Nashville and her license was out of date or it was expired. She couldn't rent a car. So I jumped in a car and went to Nashville to pick her up, picked Judy up. And I got in the car with her. I did not, I knew this lady from the events surrounding Chase's funeral that weekend, but let me tell you something. I was in the car with her, and as we were driving and talking about the Lord, at one point I looked at her and I said, you realize that, that we're one in Christ? I said, do you realize that I have a closer affinity with you because of the fellowship that the Holy Spirit provides than I do with people in my very extended family that don't know Christ? And we were talking about that, and we were both blown away. And we were thinking, wait a minute, we've been together all together our entire life about an hour, and yet we're communicating about truths in Christ that are literally like family members would share with one another. And how is that? That's the fellowship in the spirit. That is the reality of what Christ does. And he's saying, because you're in Christ Jesus, there's an affection, there's a compassion, and it's a confection and it's a compassion that comes from him. The word compassion is used in Mark 6, 34, the compassion that Jesus had for others. He changes us. It's found in Christ. I wish we had more time. You see that in verse one. You see that all of this is connected to the grace that we have because of union with Jesus Christ. But look at verse five. It sort of builds on this. He says, have this mind among yourselves. I like the ESV translation here. You know what he says? Which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see the same idea? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Everything Jesus has commanded the Christian, he enables by his grace. But you know what? One of the problems that we often deal with in our lives and why one of the reasons we need to continuously preach the gospel to ourselves is often in my experience, even as a pastor, I lose sight of that reality. I get overwhelmed with life. I get overwhelmed with people and I lose sight of who I am and what I have in Jesus. Do you ever do that? And I need to be reminded. I need to be reminded of it. I've got a good friend who is a, uh, it lives in Chattanooga. He's older than me by about 15 years, but he was a good buddy with my dad and I love him dearly. His father passed away sadly several years ago and his father had a lot of money. My friend didn't know how much. And he went to the lawyer's office and he told my father, he says, I just hope that maybe I'll have enough money to pay off my home. And he went into the lawyer's office and the lawyer looked at him and he said, I just, he goes, you want to know how much is in this will? And my friend said, yes. He says, I just hope I can pay off my house. And the lawyer smiled at him and said, there's a lot more than that. He inherited millions that he had no clue of. I feel like sometimes what happens, not only in my life, but in your life and Christians in general, is if we live as if we have nothing. 
We live as if Jesus just gave us good instructions. If we could just make it through this world. If we could just somehow grin and bear it and get through it and get to glory. And we get into passages like Philippians 2 and Ephesians 1 through 3 and Romans 1 through 11. And we get into all these texts, Colossians 1, 2, and 3. And what do we learn? We learn that in Christ Jesus, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. And we learn that in Christ Jesus, his life in us gives us the ability and not only unmerited grace, but a grace that results in transforming power in the way we live and we operate around other people. That's the good news of the gospel. It's the good news of life and the good news of walking with Christ. And in all of this to say, we look at this, I want you to chew on this this morning with me. The last question I want you to think of is close. What are the implications in my life daily of this command for humility, the example of humility, and the grace to walk in humility? What are the implications? Some of the ones that that God is teaching me, and they're going to be different for you. Number one, God uses people to drive me to Jesus. Even that phone call I received the other day, that in the initial phase of it made me madder than a hornet. I was frustrated, I was irritated, and it was as if even on that phone call, God was leading me in a heartbeat of confession, of attitude of like, you know what, I'm going the wrong direction. God softened me, softened me, and and gave me the grace. And I, I could give you a myriad of examples where I blow it in my flesh, but I can tell you like the grace of Jesus is that which gives me reflection on the truth of who I am, the truth of who others is, and the truth to be able to walk in humility towards people that wrong us. I was, uh, have you ever gone in the subway and thought you were the first person in line, but there's a person you didn't see when you're walking in the store? And the other day I was in there and I think somebody ordered about 76 footlongs in a row. And initially, i just be honest with you, I, after the third one, I was thinking, this is absolutely ridiculous. And it was as if I was sitting there. Andrew was with me. And I told him in the car, I said, buddy, I, I said, I, I, I literally, I, I struggled with sin right in the moment we were sitting there. I, I thought it was like a bad joke that he was going to order every foot long that was on the menu. And, and it was as if God took the passage I was studying in Philippians 2, and there as I was dealing with my flesh and my irritation at this man who had done nothing to me, but probably just helping his wife out when she gave him a list of 40 footlongs. Uh, it was as if the Lord, I, I just, it was like reflecting on who I am, who they are, and what God calls me to, it softened me. What is that? Is that just... Uh, Therapy techniques to how to get through Subway, saying no. That, that is the grace of the Holy Spirit reminding me of the reality of life. Reminding me that my interests aren't more important than his. Reminding me that, calm down, it's okay. I, I was driving this morning. Again, I tell you, this is real stuff. I mean, you may think my examples are really corny and cheesy. I could give you a lot of different kinds. But this morning, I was leaving a parking lot, and somebody was driving right at my car. I mean, right at it. It was one of those where I was like, seriously, they have to see me. And they didn't, and then they braked, and it was like, whoa, the whole car. And I'm looking, and at that moment, 
I really, and I have blown it before. I, I've, I honked. I, I called to apologize to Meta one time, and she said she wasn't on the road. <laughs> I thought I honked at Meta. I thought I've ruined everything in my life as a pastor. I just honked at Meta Par. And, and, but it, again, it, it reminded me in the moment, it's like, no, don't look at them. You could lay on the horn for six seconds right now and it'd be completely justified. It'd make your flesh feel really good, but die to it. Die to it. Submit to Christ in reality. I'm telling you, if this doesn't affect those silly examples, the gospel affects us nowhere in our life. If it doesn't affect us with a kid who's irritating us, if it doesn't affect a kid when their sibling's irritating them, if it doesn't affect a husband when their wife's irritating them, the wife when the husband's irritating them, let me ask you, where does the gospel affect people in real time? Where does it? But as a Christian, what do we need? We deal with our flesh. We deal with the reality of who we are, doing it our own way, and we constantly are being reminded because of what Christ has done for us, there's a better way. There's a better way. And there's a way that's enabled by the grace of God. God uses people to drive me to Jesus. God will use people and through the gospel will confront my own self-justification and lead me to confession and repentance. You ever self-justify when you blow it with people? I know I have. Well, I didn't do anything wrong. They're just the most irritating people I've ever been around. Well, they didn't, I didn't do anything. I mean, that did, don't run from churches where people have irritated me. Die to it. Don't slander people when they have irritated me. Die to it. Don't bash people when they've hurt me. And what is this going to involve in our life? You remember when Luther in the 95 Thesis on the door of Wittenberg, what did he do? The first one was the entire Christian life is one of confession and repentance. It's all of repentance. And what does that mean? Daily, the word of God is reproving me, correcting me, and in the process of training me. Not only does it God used people to drive me to Jesus. He confronts my own self-justification. But Jesus is so good to us because he gives us hope in our weakness. And when we deal with things that are so hard and so overwhelming, what are we reminded of? We're reminded that in Christ Jesus, we have everything. We're reminded of what true worship looks like. We're reminded that offering up our bodies as a living sacrifice often is in those very moments where our flesh is moving, we feel like us, to a way of sin. And it's saying, no, there's a better way in Christ, and I have empowerment and grace to walk in the Spirit and not the flesh. And all of a sudden, difficult people become opportunities to walk in Christ. Do you realize that God providentially places those difficult people in your life as opportunities to say yes to him? But finally... I begin to realize, you ever feel like you're interrupted in your schedule? And if you could just get to your schedule, you'd be fine. But people just keep showing up and messing up your schedule. You ever thought that? That's a terrible thing for a pastor to say. But I'll be honest with you. When I'm walking after my flesh, that's the way I look at life. And the very people that God puts in front of me to minister to, I see as obstacles and burdens.
then by the goodness and the grace of Jesus, he reminds me of the truth of his word. And he begins to show me that people aren't interruptions. They're the very people he's placed in front of me. They're the very people in his providence he's allowed me to love. So this morning, as we think about this, I pray that we would see that the gospel gives us a chance not only to chew on our life, but to look at how we view others. Would you bow your head? We're getting ready to go into a time of the Lord's Supper, and I want to just give you some instructions here. If you're here and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and, 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 and really what we, I think the best way to define that, according to the New Testament, is a person who's believed in Jesus Christ by grace through faith. They've trusted in Christ to save them. They've believed on him for forgiveness of sin. And, and do you realize that in the New Testament, the only way we're saved is by grace through faith. What is baptism? Baptism is just an outward symbol of an inward reality. But baptism literally becomes the way that we publicly express that. In the New Testament, we don't see any examples of an unbaptized Christian other than the thief on the cross, who was obviously, obviously hindered from being able to follow in obedience to the Lord's command. So I often say that is a significant ordinance that does not save but it is a public identifying mark. So today, if you're here and you've trusted in Jesus Christ and you follow God's call as a Christian to go through the waters of baptism, today, this supper is designed to remind you of the truth of what Christ has done for you. You may be here today and you're not a believer and I want you to sit here and I want you to think and I want you to reflect and I want you to pray as we go through this. And I want you to listen because even in this supper, the good news of Jesus goes out to you. And this is an invitation to you to trust in the work of Christ, to trust in Jesus. You may relate to sin. You may relate to realizing you're disobedient to God but the scripture says that your disobedience has separated you from God. And the plight of the Bible is that there is nothing you can do to come into the presence of God by yourself. There's nothing you can do. There's no way to experience forgiveness in and of yourself. You can't earn it. You can't work towards it. You can't rectify for your past wrongs. The only way you can experience forgiveness is by faith in what Jesus Christ has done on the cross of Calvary for you. It's by believing in Christ, believing in him, because Christ Jesus came. Isaiah 53 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Salvation's experienced by looking upon Jesus. So today I pray you'd see this announced as we take of the supper. I'm going to pray. When I'm done praying, I think you know how we do this. 
There's a table in the back in this part of the room, and there's a table in the side room. And just as you have time, go to the table, get what you need, and come back to your seat. And in the meantime, Mike's going to play, but I'm going to pray as we begin taking the Lord's Supper this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you, God, that your truth transforms. I thank you, God, that your truth enables us in a different way, that, God, this mystery that we were in Adam and we were enemies and we were alienated and we were outside of the promise, but in Jesus Christ, by grace through faith, we are now in union with Jesus Christ and we've received every spiritual blessing because of that. And there's a brand new way of living. And Lord, as we live our lives dealing with our flesh, we daily are reminded of your word and how it relates to our life. And I pray, God, the gospel would affect the way we deal with the people you've put before us in our life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.